Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Brian McFarlane. Brian is a hockey broadcasting icon, particularly for his time on Hockey Night in Canada. He is enshrined in the Hockey Hall of Fame, and he is invested in the Order of Canada. But did you know about his connections to Peter and Penny Puck? Did you know that Brian was himself a hockey player, a prolific scorer in college, and invited to try out for the NHL Chicago Blackhawks? Did you know Brian also did broadcasting stints in the U.S. with NBC and CBS? Did you know Brian was once banned from Maple Leaf Gardens by Harold Ballard? Did you know Brian has an artistic side, a renowned painter of scenes from the great Canadian pastime of pond hockey? And although you probably did know that Brian is an author, did you know he has written over 100 books with probably another dozen ready for publication? We will get to all of this as I welcome Brian McFarland to Toronto Legends. Brian, thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Well, first, Andrew, it's uh, an absolute pleasure to be with you on the, on this occasion. I'm speaking from Stouffville, Ontario, a town we kind of uh, plucked out of the Internet years ago and decided to move here from Willowdale, Ontario. Uh, we were there for 50 years in Willowdale. Before that, we were in Schenectady, New York, and we've also lived in Montreal. So there you go. Excellent. I think it would only be appropriate for you to take a moment to brag about your family. So please update us on the McFarland family, uh, if you would. Oh, my, that's a, a surprise start. Well, okay. My wife and I have been together for, I think she said, 70 some odd years. And uh, we met the very first day of college at St. Lawrence University, where I was on a hockey scholarship, and she came up from New Jersey because she heard there was a ski hill there. Well, the ski hill was about the size of a bump in the road, and um, it, it, so uh, it, it didn't get much use. But she did, she'd never seen a hockey game. Now she knows more about the game than I do. Uh, we have three children and uh, s- uh, six grandchildren and some and four great-grandchildren. Don't ask me all their names or where they live, but uh, that's a summation, and we don't expect any more children ourselves, so that's, uh, that's a plus as well. You got them all off the payroll. That's good. Now, let's start with your broadcasting career and your path to Hockey Night in Canada. At 15, you decided you wanted to be an announcer or a writer, and you ended up getting a U.S. college hockey scholarship that really turned your life around. Please share how your experiences at St. Lawrence University in Canton, New York, really got you going. Well, Andrew, I was lucky to be there because I was a failing high school student in Ottawa where I grew up, and uh, my mother always wanted her kids to get a college degree. So uh, I was playing junior A hockey, and my final series was against Jean Beliveau and the Quebec Citadels, and they knocked our junior A team out of the playoffs. And I didn't know I was going to go over to England maybe and play hockey. Uh, I knew I would never be an NHL player. And lo and behold, we played an exhibition, one final game to wind up our season at St. Lawrence University in Canton, New York, 
a brand new building on the campus, and hockey was one year old when I went there. The boards were varnished, would you believe? I've never seen an arena with varnished boards. And the coach came over and said, would you like to come here next year? And I said, I think I would. You've got a radio station on campus. I could, uh, it's a liberal arts college. That suits me. So uh, I went there mainly for the hockey. And they said, we'll take a chance on you. We don't really have any grades from your high school. Because I was skipping to play hockey almost every day. And uh, they said, we'll take a chance. And that turned my whole life around. Um, I just uh, just loved my four years there. I was an English major, but I was able to uh, take other courses, and uh, I got involved in a play in my senior year of Mice and Men, and there I am on stage acting. I was a shy guy, and I never thought these things would open up to me. And the radio station, I got to do some play-by-play of the local the campus, uh, the, the university football games and hockey, um, and baseball. So that was the start of it. I was a cameraman in the summer months in Schenectady, New York. The TV station there had been on the year uh, 17 years before I got there, a real pioneer station for CBS. And they, they gave me a 10-minute sportscast to do. And I, I can remember interviewing guys like Ty Cobb and Stan Musial and people like that, Joe Lewis, and then I decided to put everything in a U-Haul once I got married and the baby was on the way and come to Toronto to get on Hockey Night in Canada. I'm making this a long-winded answer, but it seemed to work out. I got to Toronto. I couldn't find a job anywhere. And um, I was selling pots and pans or was about to take a job in that department, and my wife wouldn't let me. She said, you're a broadcaster. You've got to stick this out. And who moved into the apartment building but the sports director of the CBC, Retzlaff, Mr. Retzlaff and his wife. So my wife and his wife did the laundry together in the basement. And she said, you should, your husband should give my husband a chance on CBC. And he did. And that led to a job at CFRB. And, and that was the start of it. And a, and a stint with CBS. I did 11 games because... They wanted somebody who could skate on the ice during the interviews. So I went to CBS with, oh, green as grass, no experience, and nervous as hell. But I did the job, and it it seemed to work out okay. And then I was offered a job with a new TV station in Montreal as the sports director. That was a terrible move to make. It was just, uh, oh, one problem after another there. I don't want to dwell on them. So I I quit my job and was out of work for months, and I called Mr. Bassett and said, could you use a guy on CFDO in Toronto? And he spoke to Johnny Esau, the sports director, and he hired me. I said, will you pay all my expenses? They said, no, you've got to pay your own way back here. And it was half the salary I was getting in Montreal. I think it was 7500 a year back then in 1960, uh, thereabouts. And it led to a job with Hockey Night in Canada. One of their employees came to me one day and said, let's have lunch. Have you got any good ideas for our intermissions? And I said, yes, you should have a sort of a college for kids where they can learn the fundamentals, how to take a face off for Dave Keon and Tim Horton on defense, that sort of thing. And they bought the concept, but they never introduced it. 
and they hired me at 20000 bucks a year. I thought that was a fortune, an absolute fortune to go into advertising and be on Hockey Night in Canada, or at least have my ideas on the, on the telecast. Well, they never introduced this thing, so I said, uh, they said, what are we going to do with you? And I said, put me up in the gondola with Bill Hewitt. I'd love to do that kind of work. So they did, and that worked out okay, and that led to NBC, and I was three years there, and they were wonderful people to work with, Ted Lindsay and Tim Ryan, especially my colleagues there. I'm I'm going on far too long with this, but uh, that's a summation of my uh, ups and downs early in my career. It's an excellent summation, and into that gondola you went, Brian. You were on Hockey Night in Canada for 25 years. home today, do you still have a closet full of your baby blue blazers? <laughs> I think I have two left. Uh, they go to auctions from time to time. I think I had maybe 14 or 15 of those over the years, and uh, I can still get into the one I have. And I, uh, when I, Sometimes people even ask me out to make a speech once in a while. Well, I used to do about 30 speeches a year, at pretty good fees to MC big events like uh, the, the big sports dinners in Toronto. I usually emceed some of those. There was one I did in New York every year for 33 years, would you believe? A major dinner at the Waldorf Astoria, and we had Rocket and Gordie Howe, and oh, all the great stars came down, and they'd have a table full of 14 NHLers, a lot of Rangers, of course, and Islanders. But uh, that was a wonderful event, and I did it gratis because everybody, nobody got paid at the hit table, but they were allowed to bring their wives down and have a weekend in New York, going to the theater, going shopping, and the reception dinner before the dinner on Monday's night. And we had no trouble until they changed the head uh, committee and the committee decided, well, we've got to get Gretzky as our main guest. We've never had Orr or Gretzky. So they approached Gretzky's agent, and they wanted 60000 bucks, I believe it was, to have Gretzky there. And that ended the whole dinner because the whole idea, it couldn't have worked if the people hadn't come gratis just for the, a nice weekend with your wife in New York. But that was a wonderful adventure for me. Well, certainly those uh, baby blue blazers were iconic, but I want to ask you about a different outfit. Brian, I want to ask about your involvement in Showdown, which was a Hockey Night in Canada intermission feature that pitted the best NHL scorers one-on-one in a breakaway competition against the best NHL goalies. You broadcast some of these, but instead of your baby blue blazer, they gave you and Howie Meeker really snazzy tracksuit jackets. Yes, I remember. That was, uh, that was filmed in Markham. And we kept the winner's secret, and we'd play those episodes during the season. They were also on NBC, by the way. And I got to work with Howie Meeker, and all the big stars of hockey loved coming to Showdown. But then Harold Ballard got involved when Boria Salming broke his little finger or something in one of the events. Harold said, I'm not having any of my players involved, even though the Players Association had endorsed the tournament. 
and supported it, it kind of brought an end to the thing because we couldn't get any Leaf players after that, and it was too bad. That was Harold's decision, and he uh, he made a bad decision, as he did many times in his career, but uh, we won't dwell on that. Well, we'll get a little more into that after. Uh, now, you mentioned, Brian, you had worked at CBS and NBC, and in fact, it was while working for NBC that you once literally ran out onto the ice to cover an injury you actually interviewed a linesman on the ice mid-game. I don't think a broadcaster before or since has gone out onto the ice during a hockey game. Well, I'm hoping nobody good ever does that again. I want to be the only guy that ever stepped on the middle of the ice in a Stanley Cup playoff game to interview the linesman. Barry Ashby of the Philadelphia Flyers took a puck to the face, and he was very seriously injured. He never played another game. And I was standing at rinkside waiting to interview somebody else, I guess, during the intermission. And the gates opened and the the, the uh, gurney, the stretcher came out with the doctors. And I just followed right along with my microphone. I have a, a live mic. And I, I passed Brad Park on the ranger bench and he just leaned over and said, Brian, you're not supposed to be out here. I said, I know, Brad, but I'm not stopping now. And I went right out and interviewed Matt Pavlich about the injury. Stemkowski gets it, Ralph a shot, that hit Barry Ashby, a shot wide, Ashby is down and hurt, Ashby was hit right in the face with a shot by Dale Ralph, he is in great pain down there, and they're coming out quickly with trainer Frank Lewis, and calling for the doctor to come out, a high rising shot by Ralph caught Barry Ashby right in the face. We're going downstairs now to Brian McFarlane, who is right out there on the ice. Talk to the linesman, and Barry Ashby was hit just on the eyelid, just above the right eye. It is a bad gash, according to the officials. Matt, you were there. Could you describe it? Well, it's just above the eyelid, between the eyelid and the eyebrow. Well, there's a lot of blood, and they've moved quickly to get Barry Ashby off the ice on this stretcher. I, would, I read the paper the next day, and it said, McFarland told us stay off the ice. Well, nobody'd spoken to me about it at all. But I saw Mr. Campbell, the president of the league, a, year, a month, a week later in New York, and he came out of a room and walked down past me, and he, I said, hello, Mr. Campbell. He said, hello, Brian, how are you? I said, fine, sir. He walked about five steps, and he turned, and he said, Brian, stay off the ice. <laughs> I said, yes, sir, I will. <laughs> and as you say, never before, and probably never since. <laughs> Let's talk some Peter Puck. <laughs> here again. This time I'm going to tell you about playing the game. NHL hockey, that is, the world's fastest team sport. Now that cartoon puck has been a part of your life for over 50 years. You are known as the father of Peter Puck, although you did not create him. He was created by Hanna-Barbera for NBC, not for CBC. Brian, can you please share the story of Peter Puck? Well, I'm going to make a little correction there. I would modestly said I didn't have uh, much to do with creating them, but actually, I did. They called me from Hollywood, and uh, I flew out there, and we talked about the content of the shows. And they said, you've written a dozen or 20, 30 books about hockey. We'll bring a lot of stuff along, and, and we will produce the Peter Puck features based on your information, which they did. And they produced nine episodes of four minutes each about what the referee does, offsides and icings, 
the star, the Stanley Cup story, that sort of thing. So I, I was pretty much a big part of that, but I, I'm far too, I guess I was far too modest to claim that because I never got paid for it. And yet I did get the uh, worldwide rights to Peter Puck of along the way somewhere. Uh, I had to pay for them. But I had faith that this character would be world famous someday. And you know, here he's 50 years old this year, and he is making a comeback of sorts. And we hope that will get him into China and Russia and the European markets, as well as the U.S. market, which is huge now. And we're bringing Penny Puck along with Peter, so that'll be a boon for all the women playing hockey. And we have no idea where this is going, but I think it might take us pretty far down to a big reintroduction of Peter and Penny Puck. Well, that is great. I'm going to consider that breaking news. It's excellent news that we may see the reincarnation of Peter Puck and Penny Puck. Excellent. Now, Brian, I got a note from listener Shannon Stapleton from Stephenville, Newfoundland, who knew you were coming onto the podcast, writes Shannon, As a kid, I visited the Peter Puck Museum in Niagara Falls with my teammates from the Brampton Maroons. Mr. McFarland not only gave us a personal tour, but he signed books for all of us what a guy. Please ask Mr. McFarlane if the Peter Puck Museum is still in operation in Niagara Falls, Ontario. Well, isn't that a nice note? And well, um, no, it's not. They built a hotel on our site there, and we had to move, so I didn't know where to move. But I found myself in Clarington, Ontario, and they they wanted to put a museum in Clarington. The mayor did. So he um, arranged for a million-dollar extension to their arena to house the Peter Puck or the Brian McFarlane Hockey Museum. So we located there for what they told us would be a lifetime. It turned out to be one year because the mayor got involved with an old personal dispute at home and lost his his, his job when re-election time came. And the, his opponent in the um, mayoralty race said, we don't need a hockey museum in Clarington. And they did spend far too much money on it. The Hall of Fame would have uh, uh, helped me out gratis. But they decided to then spend $500,000 on laying it out and designing it. And the taxpayers payers legitimately had a real beef about that. I didn't have anything to do with it, but they did. And I don't blame them for have wanting it closed down if they had to pay all that money for a museum. But it should have thrived, but it didn't. And now it's sitting out in Edmonton, Alberta, in in storage. And um, I hope that they'll, they'll bring it back someday. And that, that would be great if it can come back. Now, Brian, this being the Toronto Legends podcast, with a very Toronto-centric focus, I'd be remiss if I did not ask for your recollections of the Toronto Maple Leafs of the 70s and 80s, not only were you there and in the middle of it, but you had your moments dealing with the Maple Leafs owner, the irascible Harold Ballard. Now, Brian, I don't want to give you PTSD because these aren't all necessarily fun memories, but let's go over a few of them. At one point, Harold Ballard banned you from broadcasting games from inside Maple Leaf Gardens because you backed Captain Daryl Sittler in a dispute with Punch Imlac. So what did you do? Well... There was a game in Minnesota, and Daryl Sittler had been advised by his doctor not to attend the game. He, he was going through a lot of depression and, and personal angst. And I, 
I was writing a book with Daryl, and I knew some things about his personal health and his problems, and I I felt badly for him that he didn't show up and was getting ripped in the press and by Harold. So I went on an intermission, and I told them I I might support Daryl on the intermission, and if it if it just doesn't work, you can always tape it over, or we could cancel it. Well. Whatever I said, they chose to play during the intermission, and I was saying, why don't they treat Daryl like Bobby Clark is treated in Philadelphia, that sort of thing. And uh, Harold fired me right after the show. He said, I think I's never going to do another telecast from Maple Leaf Gardens. And um, Dave Hodge supported me, and so did Dick Beddoes and others. And so he allowed me to um, do some things, just the post-game work and so I, I ended up doing Winnipeg Jets for four years, which was nice, and then the Montreal Canadiens uh, for four years, which was nicer, and there was no more angst or, or problems with Harold after that that I was aware of. Um, I did write a book on Peter Puck once and put Peter coming out of Bill Flett's beard on the back of the book. And I gave Harold a free copy, and he looked at it, and he said, I'm going to sue your publishers for 50000 bucks. There's my logo on Flett's sweater. And I said, Harold, I told him to crop the jersey so Leafs wouldn't show, and they didn't do it. So you're going to have to sue me, I guess. Well, no lawsuit came out of that. Uh, Harold, I worked in Harold for Harold in public relations for nine months or so. I don't know today whether I was fired or quit. I just went away on vacation and never came back. Um, we had a love-hate relationship, and so did Imlac with me. He never liked the things I said about his hockey team. And when I was out of work, I was hired by the Buffalo Sabres to be publicity director and play-by-play voice. Not many people know this. I'd never done play-by-play. But then they hired Imlac. And he said, I don't want any part of McFarland with the Buffalo Sabres. I heard secondhand he'd said something like that. So I lost my job in Buffalo. Uh, but that that was just another thing. I would have liked to have gone over there or Pittsburgh or Chicago. I was negotiating with them, but I'm a Canadian. I'd been in the States for four years at college, and I love Americans. They never treated me better than I was in with NBC or at college. But I also love Canadians, and I love being a Canadian. So I um, I opted to come back, and um, it's all worked out well. I look back now, and I say, where did all that career go? I just, I'm 90 years old. I, decades went by in a minute, it seems. And, uh, and I noticed, I tell young people today, enjoy what you do now, because it's going to be over before you know it. And you look back and say, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? I had the time. I didn't do it, and I should have made the decisions, and they may not all work out, but make quick decisions and follow your heart and your passion, and things probably will make out. Well, certainly you have a lot of lessons learned, and I want to point out, for the record, the Brian McFarlane perseverance. The part of the story that you did not tell is after you were banned from Maple Leaf Gardens, you broadcast from outside Maple Leaf Gardens. You did your intros to Hockey Night in Canada right from Carlton Street. Yeah, I did one game that uh, Ralph Mellenby, our 
executive producer said, you can't go in the building, so we'll have you open the show from outside on the street. And it was a cold winter day, and I think in in November, December. And uh, Ralph came over to me after we opened, did the opening and taped it. And he said, two guys were watching you. And he, one of them said, who's that guy? Well, that's McFarlane. He's opening the show here. He's not allowed in the building. And the other guy said, he's going to get bloody cold out here in the middle of February doing this work. And we all laughed about that. But uh, fond, fond memory, actually, even though it was a, a dire time in my life. Well, a really fond memory is a historical fact that, Brian, you were actually there in the gondola at Maple Leaf Gardens for the last time the Maple Leafs won a Stanley Cup over the heavily favored Montreal Canadiens in 1967. It came right in front of the net, 14 seconds. 13, it's a pass up for Richard, stopped by Marcel Cronenberg. It's Coker, flicking it down the ice of the little blue line. Three seconds, two, one, the game is over. The Toronto Maple Leafs have won the Stanley Cup. What a tremendous hockey game this was. Fantastic. Look at the Leafs, Bob Terry shot shot. Johnny Bauer was one of the first men over the boards. 27, Mahovlitz. There's George Armstrong, who scored that insurance goal. Mike Walton is down there. Bobby Bond, Eddie Shack. What do you remember about that game? Oh, I remember almost every few minutes of the final seconds of that game, uh, the final minutes of the game. Yeah, I, I, I remember vividly being there and my, with my wife she was in the building she never got a often got a free ticket but she was there then and now our aim is to be the oldest couple ever to see the Leafs win the Stanley Cup and uh, that may come true but um, to see to see Terry Sawchuk out there and to see Punch Imlach put his oldest players on the ice for the final minute with an empty net at the other end of the rake and a minute or so to play, and the Montreal Canadiens, who were a better team than the Leafs, I would think, overall, but the Leafs just pulled that one out of the hat. And we thought there'd be other Stanley Cups to follow, but there never has been, and it's been usually poor management and poor direction and poor coaching and poor players. Well, you're not going to win the Stanley Cup unless you have all of those things going for you. And they've they're coming close, but it, it's just hard to look at the Leafs and think they're going to win the Stanley Cup when they've faltered in the playoffs for seven straight years and probably eight straight years. Who knows what's going to happen this year? And uh, I was so pleased that we were there to see that. Well, not only were you pleased to see it, I understand that after this big win in 1967 that you and Mrs. McFarland crashed owner Stafford Smythe's celebration party. I didn't even know where Stafford Smythe lived, but we went back to our house and had a, a glass of wine or something at the kitchen table. And there was a director from the CBC, um, I've forgotten his name now, but we said to each other, why are we sitting here having a celebration when we should be at the Stanley Cup party? And those buggers never ask us to any uh, team event. They do, even to this day, you don't get in. I don't go to hockey games anymore. I have to buy a $500 ticket to get in. So we said, let's go crash the party. So I, I don't remember who knew how to get the staff. There must have been the third member because Joan and I didn't know. 
So we come there, and the doors open, and there's music and a band, and they're all in there partying, and the Stanley Cup is in the foyer of Stafford's house. So we took a sip, and then we watched Eddie Shack up there dancing his head off and his feet off, and, and everybody having such a great time. And we stayed for maybe an hour, and then parted, departed, satisfied that we'd uh, been to a Stanley Cup party as well as watching them win the Cup. Well, here we are, 57 years and counting later. I can only hope, Brian, in my lifetime, I can, I can crash a party somewhere with the Leafs winning the Stanley Cup. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Brian McFarlane, please check out the more than 200 additional episodes available anytime. We got Nelson Millman, John Shannon, Nick Kiprios, Jesse Fuchs, Tony Ambrosio, and Ken Reed. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to torontolegends.ca. As mentioned, Brian, you were a big-time college hockey star at St. Lawrence University, and you did actually attend a professional hockey tryout with the Chicago Blackhawks in Pembroke, Ontario. But why did you keep it quiet and not brag that you were invited to an NHL tryout? Well, in those days, if you even skated with an NHL team it could affect your college eligibility. So I was aware that if anybody found out I was even skating with the Blackhawks and wanted to complain, like our opponents at RPI or Clarkson might have complained, I wanted to keep it quiet. And it was only going to be for a day or two. I'd worked in Pembroke, and I had friends there, and I visited, and I went down to the arena, and and they didn't take much notice of me, and justifiably, I who was I? Just a cut. They didn't think college players were NHL caliber at all. So I skated on the line with some pretty well-known players, and I even directed one guy to take left wing because I was a right winger. <laughs> and I'm telling him, "You go over there, and I'll stay here." <laughs> so. I thought to myself, oh, I'd better get out of here if somebody's going to complain and I'll lose all my college eligibility. So I just thanked them for the invitation. I, I knew I wasn't going to be invited to stay to their main camp or whatever. So uh, it was just a, a shot in the dark, and I, uh, I'm glad I did it. And And you know what followed up? That year we went to the NCAA finals in Colorado Springs, College hockey to me was so much fun. I'd played three years a junior, and in those days, junior A players could go to the States on the scholarship. Afterwards, they uh, they kind of curtailed junior A's from going. They'd take junior B's. But I went down there as a junior A, and um, I, I'd never set any records or anything, but we were pioneers, so... We just played our games, and I found out when I graduated, I'd scored 101 goals. And I think 180 some odd assists, 190 maybe, and and their school records to this day, <laughs> and we just assumed there'd be other guys every year maybe come along and break those records. But one decade would go by, and then another, and people would say, "You know, you still got records down there." And I said, "I do, yeah." So I guess they're still there. So maybe they'll never be broken. I don't know. Because it's harder to score now in college hockey than it was in my day, I guess. It must have been. If I could score 100 goals, you, you don't think that three or four guys that came out and play, played pro for St. Saint, uh, Saint, uh, Lawrence and then played in the NHL, 
they should have broken those records, but somehow I guess they got the other opposition got a little better. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> I think it's fantastic that you're still the record holder. Now, Brian, the four hockey players you consider the greatest are Jean Beliveau, Rocket Richard, Gordie Howe, and Wayne Gretzky, and you have actually played on ice against all four of them. How'd you pull this off? Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And uh, I've always said John Beliveau was my all-time favorite hockey ambassador. I don't say player. I mean, uh, there were others that were equal to him, I'm sure, in uh, Gretzky and Orr, obviously equal to him in ability. But he was such a classy individual. Hockey was so lucky to have a guy with a Montreal of Canadians who could go anywhere in the world and be so classy with everybody he met. And uh, I, I just admired that quality in him. I, I got to work with him on the Scotiabank Hockey College I created for several years. And uh, he just amazed me with his um, with his ability to get along with people and to say the right thing at the right time. You wouldn't get that from Bobby Hull or some others. But uh, with Gretzky, I played against him when he was 12 years old and then an NHL old-timers game in Hamilton or somewhere. And, and he went around athlete Andy Bathgate, a Hall of Famer, and scored a goal or two. And I went over our bench and I said to Art Smith, the coach, I said, that's the Gretzky kid from the Pee Wee tournament in Quebec. They say he's going to be a great player someday. And Art said, Oh, yeah? Never heard of him. Well, <laughs> nobody'd really heard of him back then, but I, I'd been reading about him, and I was so glad I— oh, I was so glad I got to play with him. And I got to play right wing for Mario Lemieux in the Catskills one afternoon, and they set me up for a goal against John Van Beesbrook. And I went over, and I said, Mario, you've just made my whole summer with that one pass. <laughs> So I, I had a lot of fun work playing with the old-timers and meeting those people. Now, Brian, your father was the original author for the Hardy Boys series of novels, but not under his own name, and he kept this fact hidden for much of his life. Why was that? Well, he was a freelance writer in the 30s and 20s, and that's a tough deal when you're trying to raise a family and freelance writing. You'd sell a... You'd, he'd do a sports magazine, a sports yarn of fiction for the, one of the pulp magazines, let's say. There were all kinds of pulp magazines, and they'd pay maybe 20 bucks or 15 bucks or 30 bucks for an article, and he'd spend, you know, have most of the week on that. So he never got wealthy, but he answered an ad in the paper one day, writer wanted for juvenile fiction. And the man in New Jersey who hired him tried him out with a couple of uh, Dave Fearless books, and he wrote two or three of those and got a hundred bucks for his trouble. No royalties were ever mentioned. And then he said, Les, I'm I want you to write a new series we're planning on the Hardy Boys. These two brothers, blah, 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 they're going to do this and that. And he, they'd send him a brief outline, a one-page, here's where they're going to drive a motor car in a race or something, and there's a mystery in the house on a hill or whatever. My dad would follow the outline to a point, but he'd throw in an Aunt Gertrude or somebody like that to enhance the thing and make it more colorful. And he did a good job because the Hardy Boys survived all the other series except maybe Nancy Drew. And he did even, he was even Carolyn Keene for nine books in one of those series. 
But after 21 books, he said, I think that's enough. I'm getting on and I'm going to work at the National Film Board in, uh, during the war years. And he, I said, Dad, why didn't you sue them for, 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 for lack of royalties? I mean, today they have uh, writers' unions and everybody protects everybody else and people sue each other. He said, no, 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 I knew what the deal was. He explained the deal and I accepted it. So I'm, I wasn't about to sue anybody because I, I have to admit that I took it on and knew what the deal was. So I thought I kind of admired him for that. Well, I have another royalties-related question for you. Now, Brian, you are also a well-known painter. The Joy of Pond Hockey is a major theme of yours. You've also written over 100 books with, as I noted, over a dozen more ready to go on your computer. But in addition to painting and writing books, you also have a songwriting credit on your artistic resume. You wrote the lyrics for Clear the Track, Here Comes Shaq, which actually went number one on the charts. Eddie Shaq was famous for playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs, equally famous as a real character and for being the spokesman for the pop shop. Clear the track, here comes Shaq. They call him the great entertainer, but ah, boy, Eddie's no clown. It couldn't be made any plainer. It's great to have Eddie in town. So clear the track, well, here comes Shaq. Now, once Eddie Shaq realized how popular this song became, why was he always hounding you anytime you crossed paths? Oh, boy, boy, Eddie Shaq. We go back 50 years, I guess. When he was a Leaf, he was very popular one season, and I I had a brother-in-law who was a doctorate of music. So I said, Bill, I've written these words called Clear the Track Here, and here he, I forgot the words. Clear the Track, here comes Shaq, he knocks him down, he gives him a whack, he can score goals, he's found the knack, Eddie, Eddie, Shaq. And he said, yeah, and he took 20 minutes, I think, to write some music, and I took 20 minutes writing that suit, silly hole, and... And we put it together, and we went to RCA Victor Studios, and we, and Bill said, well, who are these musicians you got with you? And I said, I found them in the press club. They sounded okay to me. He said, but you're not a musician. They don't sound very good to me. I said, well, it's too late now, Bill. I've contracted them, and they're going to get 100 bucks or something to do this. So we used the secrets and the the song was recorded. We took it across the hall to R.C. Victor, and they said, yeah, we'll we'll print it and sell it, and they did, and it went to number one. I don't know how many thousands it sold, but it was there for ahead of the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and everything, and now Eddie came out of the woods, and he said, where's my money? I said, hey, you don't get any money. I went to you, and I said, do you mind if I write a song about you? And you said, I don't give a what you do, so I... That's your release, my release. And I didn't get any money. The The royalties should have flowed in, but they never did. And I was awfully busy doing NBC and, CB, and CBC and all this. And I never bothered too much with the royalties. I thought my brother-in-law would look after that. But I don't know whether he got paid or not. And I guess the musicians were the only ones that got paid. I'm not sure where the money went. And I'm not even sure... How much was lost in that deal, but 
I went to them maybe 30 years later, the, the union, and I said, I wrote that song a long time ago and never got paid for it. And they just kind of laugh and they said, well, it's too late now to get any money out of anybody. I, we wouldn't know where to start. Would you take a thousand bucks? And I said, would I? Sure I would. But I'll never tell Eddie Shack I got a thousand bucks because he's harassed me for 30 years. That so-and-so McFarlane at a head table, that N-so-B never paid me for that song. And I took him aside, and we were going to a roast for Howie Meeker in Vancouver, and we were at the airport. The flight going out, he really latched into me, and I was so embarrassed because he said some very personal things, and he got too much wine. So when we were gathered around the carousel in the Vancouver airport, I said, Eddie, come over here. And he walked over, what do you want? And I said, I want you to know, and I, every dirty word I'd ever heard in a locker room came throwing out of, flowing out of my mouth and into his face. And I really released everything that I thought about him at that time. And Bob Goldham, I remember, came over and he nudged me and he said, well, I guess he knows how you feel about him now. <laughs> so we both mellowed and made up um uh, along the way, but uh, I'd still like to know how many how many dollars we lost on that Eddie Shack song. I hear the musicians get paid a lot of money for that stuff. <laughs> I am glad that you were able to reconcile with Eddie Shack. It, uh, it certainly was different times. Now, Brian, Don Cherry, you have known from the very first time he entered the Hockey Night in Canada broadcast booth after his coaching career ended. Any good Don Cherry stories? I loved working with Don Cherry. I was so disappointed in, in my boss when he took me aside when Dave Hodge left for Vancouver after the pencil flip in the air. That's another story altogether. But Dave Hodge was a big loss to us. And uh, my boss came to me and said, uh, take the weekend off and tell us what you want to do with Hockey Night in the future because we've got to reorganize quickly. And I spent all weekend talking to my wife and debating, and I went to him on Monday morning, and I said, I've thought it all over. I'd like to do Coach's Corner with Don Cherry. I'd like to do some play-by-play. I love working with the guys in midweek games in Hamilton, so don't take me off there. And I, I made some requests. And he said, oh, no, 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 forget about all that. We just hired Ron McLean to do most of that stuff. I said, What? You gave me a weekend to come back to you and tell you what I wanted to do, and suddenly you say, well, we are, we've ignored that altogether. Uh, nothing against Ron McLean. He was, I guess, ready to come in, but uh, I was very disappointed I didn't get to do to Coach's Corner because Don Cherry liked working with me. I gave him a full time. He, I got right to the, the, the question, you know, not 45 minutes leading into him, just say, Don, the Leafs lost again. How come? Something like that, you know, uh, get into his, let him speak. That was his odium. And um, I think he liked me for that. But we got along well on road trips and everything. I, I take him in the, into the museum in Montreal and see all he wanted to see were the sailing ships. And I'd take him to the used bookstore because I was always on the lookout for used hockey books and everything. And I'd say, well, I didn't find anything again to today, Don, and he's got two big bags full of books he bought there, all about sailing ships and history. <laughs> he said, 
you bugger, you don't ever buy a book. He said, I buy two two bags full and take them back to the hotel. So I I like Don, and uh, I know lots of people quarrel with what he said, and I I kind of ignored what he said on the air at times, but uh, he sure entertained people. And uh, in the press box where the guys are kind of coldly professional, they all tuned in to Don when the intermission came on, especially if those Leaf games were as dull as they got to be in the 80s. <laughs> they were there every time. Well, he was definitely popular, and it, w- it would be nice to see him come back in some form related to hockey. Brian, as we close up, I want to ask if you're active on social media. If so, where can we best follow you? How do fans interact with you today? Oh, Angela, I'm so embarrassed. I'm 92, and I just can't keep up with this digital world. It's all I can do to get my words into a computer keyboard and have them show up on the screen. I have a wife that's more technically knowledgeable than I do, thank goodness, and we have an expert that comes in every once in a while and gives me lessons. I don't, I just, I can't grasp it. Social media, it, it's all around me. I don't have an, I don't have a, I don't have a cell phone. I don't carry a phone. People are always taking pictures and say this, and I'd love to be able to take some of my paintings and transcribe them somewhere and send them to somebody. They might want to use them in a gallery. I don't know how to do any of that stuff. I should ask my 11-year-old great-granddaughter if she knows how to do it, and she'd say, sure, granddad, or great-granddad, great-granddad, whatever. The kids today are marvelous, and uh, they're so well-informed and uh, able to do things that old buggers like me will never learn how to do. Well, there's always something new to learn, and it was great from your intro hearing. you got all these great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren. They'll definitely bring you up to speed. Brian, I want to thank you for your time today. It was great to meet you, and I really appreciate all your recollections and your great stories. Andrew, it's been a pleasure being with you today. I know we had some technical issues, and I my voice wasn't very good in the beginning, but that coffee must... Maybe my wife put a little shot in there. I don't know, but it, it, my voice improved a little bit. It should never be what it used to be, but that's okay, too. I'm happy to be at this situation in my life, and... Uh, my motto now is, I may go in 10 minutes or 10 years, and either way, it'd be okay with me. I want to say that you remain as fabulous as ever. I'm really very pleased to have had this time with you today, and I look forward to talking to you again soon in the future. And to the listeners, on behalf of Brian McFarland, I'm Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jag and Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. 
I'm Matt Kundal, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.